welcome to meet me for coffee i got an amazing guest uh, you might recognize him from the joe rogan show um he's epidemiologist cardiologist dr peter mccullough thank you so much for joining us thanks for having me and it's uh called meet me for coffee it's about coffee conversations that we should be having um how do you take your coffee do you drink coffee i take it with a little half and half and splenda all right fantastic and uh well you know what is, is coffee good for you doctor I think it is. You know, there are studies that show that this coffee is good for you. It certainly doesn't cause harm. Uh, about 99% of doctors are completely addicted to coffee. So, boy, we hope we're not doing harm. Um, people have enjoyed coffee for a very long time. I think it's probably one of the more enjoyable parts of my day is that first cup. Absolutely. Well, same here. And same with like, the last cup. I have probably like five or six today. So, uh, <laughs> I want to thank you for joining us. We got lots to get through. Um the, the first question I want to ask you, I know you mentioned in, in the past that you are fully vaccinated. Uh, I'm fully vaccinated as well. Knowing what you know now about these vaccines and COVID, would you recommend taking the vaccine? Is it safe? Yeah, I'm going to clarify. You know, I'm fully vaccinated with all the evidence-based safe and effective vaccines, but I haven't taken the COVID-19 vaccine because okay. I had COVID-19 in October of 2020. And the FDA and the vaccine manufacturers agreed that someone like me couldn't benefit from a COVID-19. That's the reason why someone like me, I would have been excluded from randomized trials. So no, I haven't taken the COVID-19 vaccines. And, um, and uh, you know, because of that, it's just simply a regulatory uh, fact that, um, uh, that someone like myself, I, w- I couldn't even be in a randomized trial of getting a vaccine if I wanted to. And now we've learned that those who are COVID recovered, that if they take the vaccine, there's no opportunity for benefit. In fact, they're harmed by the vaccine. So no, no, I wouldn't take a COVID-19 vaccine because I, I don't want to be harmed. And no one in my situation who's had COVID-19 respiratory illness should take a vaccine. Well, absolutely. And uh, I've had COVID as well. And, and I've, I've always been searching for that answer. Our government here in Canada is basically trying to coax people into getting both their shots uh, now we're available, able to get the third booster and nursing homes are most likely getting their fourth shot. In your opinion, is it safe to get three or four shots in your body a year? We don't have uh, adequate safety data to, to basically make that claim. Uh, the vaccines uh, have not uh, been particularly efficacious. Our CDC director United States came out in the middle of summer and said, you know, the vaccines have failed to stop the spread of the virus between vaccinated person to vaccinated person. And then we have data by Singarajam from published in the Lancet showing 39% of all spread is among fully vaccinated to fully vaccinated. And then data from Nordstrom and colleagues, as well as 22 other studies show the vaccines basically run out of coverage after six months. They run out of coverage. And so uh, the agencies have all agreed, well, the solution to that is to give a booster. And now we have data from November 4th by uh, Young Zhu and colleagues published in JAMA showing that with the Delta variant in high Delta um, uh, areas in the United States, the vaccine efficacy was only 20%. And we had 99% Delta for months. So no, a vaccine that only has 20% vaccine efficacy is not one worth giving a booster. Uh, because it's not going to boost it more than 20, you know, at that, that level of coverage of 20%. Is there any evidence, um, like, how do they identify 
what variant is in circulation? Do they test every patient or they just assume? The, the departments of community health do do genomic sequencing. So they know what people have based on regional samples. And then they use a modeling program called Nowcast. And it's pretty good. The CDC does this uh, to anticipate where we are. And they adjust it. You can go online and figure out where we are. Uh, January 4th, Nowcast is predicting. Of course, the data will come in in arrears. But it's predicted, I believe it's true, 93% Omicron in the United States. And you know what? Good riddance, Delta. Because Delta was a long and hard outbreak. Omicron is so much easier, so much milder, briefer syndrome. Are the vaccinated people more at risk of infection from Omicron? There are some data to support that. You know, there were studies and reports from uh, the UK, Denmark, South Africa. And the very first CDC report, December 10th on Omicron, said over 70% of everybody with Omicron was fully vaccinated. There's been a report from Germany, over 90% of people with Omicron are fully vaccinated. You know, I'm not really seeing that way. Honestly, in my clinical practice, I, I see that Omicron's broken through natural immunity. So those who've had COVID-19, like myself, can get Omicron. In fact, that happened. It's a very brief and mild syndrome. Uh, the vaccinated clearly can get Omicron. And again, it's a brief and mild syndrome, maybe a little bit more severe than somebody who's naturally immune. And then the unvaccinated, COVID-naive, certainly can get Omicron. It can be uh, a, a more difficult illness there. But across the board, I think everybody can rest assured that Omicron, we're down to, in a paper by Abdullah and colleagues, we're down to 1% inpatient mortality in South Africa, 1%. And they don't give any early treatment. So if we actually have early treatment in a high-risk Omicron patient with severe symptoms, I fully expect now that COVID mortality is deeply below 1% for everybody. And so we can rest assured we're not going to end up in the hospital or worse. That's fantastic news to hear. Um, th- there's, a, there's a lot of uh, skepticism around how to treat yourself when you've got COVID. Um, they say, go get a test. Um, yeah, get a test. But when you're in the hospital, then they'll treat you. But what what can you do? when you're developing symptoms, is there something you can keep around the house? I know ivermectin, I'm not sure if that's available here in Canada. Um, there is HCQ as well, hydroxychloroquine. And, uh, but what are some things that I can keep around the house in case I start developing some of these symptoms? Our approach has become much more uh, sophisticated. And fortunately for Canadians, Canadians can have a shoebox of six things that they buy over the counter, six things. So here they are, no doctor needed as a home survival kit. The first and most important is povidone iodine or betadine. That's the brown iodine liquid that doctors use in the emergency room to sterilize wounds. It's used, it's uh, available for external use. It's about $5 on Amazon or any online retailer. And what you do is you take half a teaspoon of the povidone iodine in a shot glass of water, 1.5 ounces of water, and then take a bulb syringe or a spray bottle and spray it up in the nose over the sink because someone's going to drip out, sniff it up in the back of the nose and spit it out and do it twice in each nostril. The rest of it, just gargle with it and spit it out. In the setting of acute COVID-19, you can do that up to every four hours. And that's amazingly effective in reducing the intensity and duration of symptoms, rapidly clearing the PCR and markedly dropping any risk of hospitalization death proven in randomized trials. So povidone iodine is in the kit. Now, if one cannot tolerate iodine, has iodine allergies, use dilute hydrogen peroxide. Any form of hydrogen peroxide in a one to three dilution can also be used the same way. Okay, so that's in the kit, one or the other. 
Now, what else should be in the kit? Zinc, 50 milligrams of elemental zinc a day. More data showing it's preventive. Vitamin D3, 5,000 international units a day for prevention. Acute treatment now, we go 20,000 international units a day for five days, okay? Vitamin C, 3,000 milligrams a day for acute treatment. Quercetin or quercetin, 500 milligrams a day, once a day for prevention, 500 milligrams a day, twice a day for treatment. And then number six, the final thing in the survival kit is famotidine or Pepsid, which is an over-the-counter antacid antihistamine. Uh, but instead of 20 milligrams, which is the package label, take 80 milligrams a day acute treatment. So those six things ought to be in a Canadian survival kit so all Canadians can be prepared. We are still getting panic calls from patients saying, doctor, surprise, I have COVID. And it's like, we're two years into this. There should be no more surprise calls. After I finish here, I'm going to spend another three hours handling surprise calls. No one should be surprised anymore. I am shocked how people are not ready for COVID-19. Everybody needs to get in gear here because this early treatment takes the edge off symptoms, reduces the intensity and duration of symptoms, and by that mechanism leads to reductions in the risk of hospitalization and death. Well, thank you for that answer. That's something that I would have liked to know a long time ago before I got COVID um, and was actually diagnosed with it. And for the record, in your opinion, I know there is proof of this. uh, Can someone be asymptomatic and spread this virus? No, they can't. Two good studies have disproven that cow and Madewell. And so despite prior modeling studies that guesstimated that was possible, it can't. And you know what? It's good news because if COVID-19 could be spread by two asymptomatic people, it'd be the first disease in the history of mankind where that's the case. So no, just like any other communicable disease, one must be symptomatic to spread it. That's fantastic news because you know why? Because, uh, up to about a few weeks ago here in Canada, we were getting tested if you're in the vicinity of anybody who was tested positive. Uh, so there, it's good to know that I had no reason to actually go and get this test done. It, um, the PCR test, um, with this, many people have said that it has created a pandemic out of nothing, pretty much, giving many false positives. And like, why do countries like Canada run tests through close to what 50 cycles? to get the results? It, you know, it's a, it's a it's an administrative overreach that needs to stop immediately. Our CDC says no PCR should go above 28 cycles. All that was doing is generating false positives. The World Health Organization, CDC, and FDA all agree that the test should not be used on asymptomatic people. So we need to stop that. It's a regulatory overreach. No one should undergo an asymptomatic test. We shouldn't. Well, all we're doing is generating positives, making making things uncomfortably, logistically difficult and expensive for no reason. At the beginning of COVID here in Canada, around February 2020, uh, they tried to scare the living hell out of us, right? On mainstream TV, there was uh, videos of China, people killing over and dying on the street. Here at, at the Walmart by my house, it was cleared out. All the non-perishable food, was gone. People were taking boxes of canned food they probably will never eat, um, water and supplies. Now, fast forward to 2022. Uh, there are no people dying on the street from COVID, like depicted in those videos. They showed us, we all got scared. There are no lineups in the hospitals or the hospitals being overwhelmed. In fact, they ended up firing the nurses for not actually getting the vaccine. And that's why we have a shortage in Medicare. Um, 
what what do you say about this mass psychosis they're trying to drive into people um making the the fear factor and 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 i, I don't know how to explain it but you explain it pretty well um making them think that something's going on that's really serious i mean is this a really serious pandemic doctor you know, it's serious for those who are very high risk, uh, very old seniors, those with uh, terrible medical problems. Sure, it's a serious illness for a tiny fraction of the population. That population needed all of our attention. Uh, but it wasn't something where we have to clean out the shelves of Walmart. I bet they left the povidone iodine and hydrogen peroxide on the shelves. I bet they actually left the most important things on the shelf. I bet the Pepsid was on the shelf. <laughs> you know, when we look backwards, you know, it's interesting now, uh, now that people actually know about polydone iodine, I don't blame anybody because the randomized trials really weren't done until January, February of this year. But, you know, someone contacted me today that on Amazon right now, it's four weeks to get a bottle of polydone iodine. So listen, the word is out. People have figured this out. Uh, you know, they've been doing this in Bangladesh and Pakistan all over the world for a long time now. Finally, America and Canada figured out the problem is in the nose. The virus is in the nose. You have to kill the virus in the nose. It's not a hand infection. Putting, you know, being obsessed with hand sanitizer is not working or putting a mask on when the infection is in the nose doesn't stop the infection in the nose. You actually have to treat the infection in the nose. Some of these things are so common sense and so simple. It's embarrassing that we're getting we're getting back to this two years later. Do masks work? No, unfortunately, mask expert Stephen Petty, I did a chance to uh, present with him. He shows a typical mask. 18% of the air goes right around the mask. The masks only filter out three microns. The virus is one micron. So no, if you're going to get a big blast of COVID-19, masks don't work. So there's no role for public masking whatsoever. I think people who have close contact, doctors, nurses, dentists, dental hygienists, maybe barbers and uh, salon operators. It's fine to wear a mask mainly to just, you know, from a courtesy perspective, try to block a big sneeze. But otherwise, we shouldn't rely on masks to stop the pandemic. It's obvious they haven't. Because if you're sick anyway, you'll show symptoms. And if you're not, you're not going to be contagious, right? So at what point do you become t- contagious with your symptoms? Once you Is it once you show symptoms you're contagious? Yeah, that's the tricky part. And Joe Rogan asked me about that. And he goes, well, the problem is, he goes, I was out playing pool and people were drinking beer. And one guy thought he was getting sick and he still continued to play pool with us. And we all got COVID, something like that. I said, well, that's the problem. When people start to get sick, they have to withdraw from congregate settings. So it has to do with perceptiveness of symptoms. And I think that's the key thing. I I think if we had flex travel policies, flexible work and school policies, if someone was getting sick or sick, to simply give them a break so they don't have to be show up into the workplace, that would go a much uh, farther way as a public health intervention than mandatory public masking. But what is the narrative with the the, the vaccine? Like why, why do they keep pushing the vaccine if there's another, uh, there's many other cures, right? combinations you can use to get yourself better from COVID-19. I know it's for, it's for to, to limit the hospitalization and, and help the hospitals, but uh, was there not a, 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 a trial that found that there's spike proteins that can last in your body for close to a year after you take a vaccine? Yeah, the, the public health response has really been to focus on the vaccines, which are not treatments. So most countries have monoclonal antibodies, and they were provided through the same mechanism. In the United States, we our monoclonal antibodies were approved before the vaccines. But there has been no focus on treatment 
In fact, monoclonal antibodies have been largely ignored by our federal stakeholders, and they've uh, basically had a, a monocular focus on vaccination, which doesn't apply to sick people. So I think it has to do, the biggest question is, why aren't we focusing on sick people? Why aren't we focusing on phone call systems, identification, helping them, uh, the, the, the right survival kit that we went over, using monoclonal antibodies, using other oral drugs in a sequence combination? Why, why is there almost no mention of the problem? The problem is some people can get really sick with COVID-19. So now you enter in the vaccines. The vaccines have, uh, we have we've had a year of them uh, in Canada, in the United States. They're all genetic vaccines. They install the genetic code in a mosaic of cells in the body, including really important cells like cells in the brain, the heart, bone marrow, and elsewhere. I've never had vaccines go to these organs like this. And then they install the code for production of the spike protein. The spike protein is the dangerous part of the virus, the spine and the ball of the virus. Spike protein damages tissues. Uh, it, dam- it causes a blood vessel injury, causes blood clotting. And now we've learned it takes forever to get a spike protein out of the body. Work by Banzel and Bruce Patterson have shown months and months, probably over a year after a vaccination, it would take to actually clear this toxic protein out of the body. And you can imagine shot one, that's a year. Shot two, another year. Booster in six months, another year. There's great concern. Scientists are concerned that actually spike protein accumulation without letting the body clear it out is going to cause disease in critical organs like the brain, the heart, the bone marrow, and um, the immunologic system. That's not something I would I like to hear right now. Uh, well, this we keep keep doing the vaccine. Say we keep doing the vaccine every every three months, six months. Will it make us be dependent on this vaccine? Um, was there a reliance on it? No, I think it simply doesn't work. A paper by uh, Zhang Yu showed uh, in November 4th in JAMA that uh, the vaccine efficacy against Delta, which is 99% of what we had, was only 20%. So the vaccines may have had some benefit in the extinct variants, but you know the current, the current uh, Delta wave that's now being replaced by Omicron, we don't have any supportive data that vaccines are going to do anything at all. Oh, wow. Uh, why, why can't medical professionals have a, a great conversation about this and, and share their ideas and, and tell them, tell each other what works? Um, I find that it's just a one-way street, especially here in Canada. Um, do you believe lockdowns work? No, they, there's no data to support lockdowns uh, you know, working. I had a chance to have dinner with Scott Atlas uh, from Stanford Hoover Institute, at a meeting in Columbus, Ohio, about a month ago, and Scott had all the data on lockdowns. And he's, I think he's got it. He's correct. Lockdowns had no impact whatsoever because we locked down the wrong people. Locking down well people doesn't do anything for the virus. All we needed to do is basically isolate the people who are sick. So a lot of this is just common sense. If you lock down a bunch of people who don't have the virus, it can't possibly have an effect. But if we just lock down or isolate those who are sick, that's how we reduce spread. Are you still in, are you in contact with anybody here, up here in Canada, any medical professionals that you've talked to? Yeah, so we have great good collaborations in Canada, both on the media side, um, you know, some other great po- podcasters, Sean Newman, Mike Martinitz, uh, but we're in communication with Ira Bernstein in Toronto, Roger Hodkinson, um, uh, uh, you know, a whole variety of experts across Canada that are leading the way. You have a leading virologist in Guelph, uh, uh, Byron Bridal. And, uh, and some really some heroic doctors, Francis Christian. There's a lot of Canadian heroes there. Uh, and and the, the general you know, profile of a COVID doctor hero 
is a doctor who's courageous enough to treat someone with COVID to prevent hospitalization and death, and a doctor who's fair enough to explain that the vaccines have very serious risks and they have to be weighed in in, in balance with what the potential benefits are, if any. Byram is the next person on my list. I will tell you that. He's just down the road for me. And uh, hopefully that'll happen. I, I kudos to him for coming out and telling us what exactly he found in this in this vaccine. Um, like I said, it's just a one way street here. So like, it's like having a bully where one person says something and that's how it goes. Um, why is that? Why why is it just a persistence on pushing one thing and not listening to anybody else who? No, obviously your expertise or uh, Dr. Malone's or, or Byron Brittle's uh, expertise, like or Bridal's, sorry, uh, his expertise. Um, how come there's there's all this false information? People uh, try and debunk what you say, and they don't actually listen to what you say. They there's so much false news and people going against you, what you have you've proven that it is true. So how, how come we're in the, we're in this mess? Well, you know, there is a free interchange of data uh, that's, that's con- you know, convened by very good organizations. In the United States, we have the Association of American Physicians and Surgeons. They've had uh, their annual meeting. We have, we have had detailed sessions on COVID-19, both treatment and vaccine safety and efficacy. Uh, we've had tons of online activities. Uh, the same is true for patient advocacy on vaccine safety and efficacy and early outpatient treatment, the Truth for Health Foundation, multiple forums, uh, the Frontline Critical Care Consortium, completely separate approach, separate protocols, uh, having large public forums. So uh, people like Dr. Bridal, myself, Roger Hodkinson, uh, Ira Bernstein, we are interchanging ideas all the time. The question is, where's everybody else? Where's the University of Toronto? Where's uh, McMaster? Uh, you know, what has uh, McGill done in terms of advancing the care for COVID-19? What's their outpatient treatment protocol? I'd love to know. Uh, how does uh, McMaster handle vaccine injuries? What, what's their approach? How do they characterize them? Uh, you, you know, we haven't heard from any of the big time uh, Canadian academic medical centers. You know, I, to, to my knowledge, there's not a single Canadian original protocol on how to treat COVID-19 as an outpatient. In fact, I'm not sure these centers even tried to treat a patient as an outpatient. I mean, since when are these brilliant Canadian organizations out of any intellectual ideas on how to approach a novel a novel syndrome? How about University of British Columbia? You don't have that much COVID up there. You could actually organize patients into protocols. Where in Canada is the Canadian Center of Excellence for Treatment of COVID-19? What hospital in Canada has pride in treating COVID-19 based on their innovation and their excellence of care, which, which center in Canada is actually recruiting patients with COVID because they're so good. I don't know. I can't doesn't, that, doesn't that strike you as odd? Because these centers compete fiercely for cardiovascular disease patients, for cancer patients. Why suddenly in COVID two years into it, nobody feels like they're any good at it. I, it's either they're very tired of it or they're just, just don't want to deal with it. Right. That's what I, what I think it is. They're afraid. Maybe they're afraid to address it. Right. Maybe they're just gripped in fear. Like, Oh, this is going to go away and we're just going to get through it. Um, but you, come on, once you get to a medical problem, you're two years into it. This has been the opera scientific opportunity of a lifetime. I mean, there could have been so many 
wonderful things that that evolved in research. And Canada's just been on the sideline. They've been academically absent in COVID-19. It's, uh, it's quite saddening to hear that. You know, um, I know we are one of the, the forerunners, the frontrunners in medicine and taking care of patients up here. And, and there's so much talent and we've just gone silent. Um, I don't know if it's, if it's influence on the political side or, or people just afraid to just step up and do it. I know uh, Byron Bridal, he did that and he got shunned for that, but I'm glad that he's still sticking to his guns. Um, is, is this almost over? Is this pandemic almost over, Mr. McCullough? It could be. You know, Omicron's interesting. It is blasting an epidemic curve larger than we've ever seen. It's obvious mass vaccination has done nothing. If mass vaccination was supposed to quell the pandemic, I mean, it is out of control. In fact, the most heavily vaccinated areas are having the worst uh, time with this outbreak. And um, we, you know, we've hit, uh, I had a private conversation with the lab director yesterday. We hit uh, in some labs, 30% positivity rates. That means one in three people coming forward for a test are positive. You're at that point. It's like, why bother? You might as well just assume everybody has it. Um, you know, at, at this point in time, uh, uh, the vaccination program has failed. I think we should drop all the vaccine mandates, just completely drop them. And then we need to pull off the market and pause the existing vaccines and study them for safety and efficacy. We need to figure out why they failed. You know, how come they don't cover Delta? Uh, how come, uh, obviously, cover Omicron so have you know, a massive outbreak of almost obvious the vaccines have failed. That needs to happen. And you know what? You can uh, insert a ray of hope here that Omicron, it's pretty clear, has closed the immunologic door on Delta paper by uh, Khan from Africa has shown this. Omicron's brief and mild, uh, very low rates of pulmonary involvement, should be very low rates of hospitalization. Uh, you know, when people get hospitalized are these panic hospitalizations, they don't need to be there. Um, and, uh, uh, and, you know, hopefully... Uh, could finish it out. Now, if the virus mutates again and finds a way to break through Omicron immunity, we could be off to the races again. We'll have to find out. This one's going to be brief, though. It's not going to be like Delta, where it's you know six months of of a very, very difficult patient care. I tell you, I'm exhausted from Delta. And so I can't wait for Omicron to just spike. You know, they in the schools for an extra week or two here before the kids go back to school. I think that's appropriate because this is such a big swell. It's affecting everybody and and, and largely everybody's getting it at the same time. Well, it's good to hear from you, doctor. I, I think we'll have another conversation if we're still in this um, come six months from now. I really appreciate your time. I thank you for taking the, the time out of your day. I know you're very busy. Um, I've had some uh, conversation with your, 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 I was one of your workers, Caroline as well. She said uh, you are horrendously busy. There's people calling you about myocarditis and, and, and lots of side effects and, and yeah. lots of things going on. And I'm, it takes a lot of courage for someone like you to step up and, and talk about these things. Cause I feel that that's what needs to happen. Um, people need to start talking about things. Um, and, and you're one of the people that stand out in front of the others. And I thank you so much. It's, it's once again, uh, it's been a pleasure. And I, I think we cleared up a lot of things, a lot of confusion for a lot of Canadians and people around the world. Listen to this show. Uh, all because you had the answers for us. Thank you so much. Well, thanks. So hopefully I stimulated Canadians to, to give their hospitals a call and ask them where their protocols are, where their center of excellence. 
you know, Canadians need to need to stimulate things a little bit. The, the population, needs, they can't just wait for someone to hand them an answer. Hopefully everybody listen, you know, will build their own survival kit if they're still COVID susceptible and get through it. I've got family members in my family who are, you know, Canadian citizens. So um, I am very familiar with the country, been there many, many times, and we wish Canada the best. Let's hope in six months this is over with and, and we can move on and we'll talk about, uh, you know, we'll talk about the next great thing. Maybe the uh, the spring baseball uh, season. So, t- uh, we'll see you soon. Take care. Thanks.